we've really been asking that question, am I dreaming? And, and what is it that I call a dream anyway? And I just, I just recognized, like, as I asked that question, like, something shifted in the zendo. Maybe it's just me, but it felt like, there you go. <laughs> and that's part of the, the tech, technology of that question, is it brings us into a different type of attention. Well, actually, I wasn't really even thinking about it or not. I was just kind of going on with my everyday life narrative and then that comes up and I get to check. And I also, if we actually take that up as a practice, which we were doing all of Sashin, you also start to look into, well, what are my assumptions around dreams? Do I actually know what a dream is? Like, What are dreams made of? What is my experience of dreaming? What is my experience of the night? This process of falling asleep. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that, but first I want to induct us into the dream a little bit. So I shared this poem on uh, day four, but I'll share it again. In this dream, we have fleshy animal bodies, subtle nervous systems, and active, creative brains. In this dream, we have been conditioned to believe things about ourselves, others, and the world that aren't true, but kept us safe when we didn't know what else to do. In this dream, we have experienced traumas and challenges that have hardened parts of us while at the same time making us more resilient. In this dream, we are tenderized by the immensity of love that we are just learning to receive. In this dream, we live on an earth with its unstable weather and unpredictable people. In this dream, many are suffering because they have forgotten who they really are. In this dream, you are a stone woman finding your legs. You are a wooden man discovering your voice. What has been wounded in you or broken is rising up to be healed. What has been lost or forgotten is slowly coming back to life. In this dream, you keep getting glimpses of your true nature, as if you were being courted by a new lover. You are curious, attentive, shy, and sometimes filled with trepidation, longing, and doubt. In this dream, you are made of earth and sky. You are fierce and tender. You are whole in and of yourself, and you are part of this great web of living. You are welcomed by the Buddhas and ancestors, by the spirit guides and animal protectors, by the great fern and noble fur, the golden-crowned kinglet, and the howling coyote. In this dream, you let the universe hold you. 
You offer up your doubts and confusions to the night sky, the crescent moon, the miracle of your becoming. In this dream, a vow emerges in your heart. It is quiet but persistent. You don't know where it came from or if anyone else hears it, but you decide to keep it close and nurture it in your heart. It is a new dream, the dream of awakening that will guide you through this life. So this talk is titled, Entering the Great Dream, How Dreams Become Vows. There is no magic formula to living a genuine spiritual life. No adequate map that charts the exact terrain. We each walk into the mystery of our lives blind. We don't know what we will encounter when we turn our attention inward. We don't know what is waiting in the unconscious to rise up into awareness. What parts of ourselves, our family karma, or the world's karma that is looking to be healed and integrated in our growing heart. Nor what aspects of our true nature are waiting to reveal themselves to us. And then we also don't know what we will be asked to carry back into the surface world and offer to others. So this is a dream. In the Buddhist tradition, one of the eight analogies used to convey the nature of experience is that it is a dream. This teaching is used to guide us into the realization that we are not fixed. We're more actually mercurial. And so is everyone else in the world. It's used to point out the innate wholeness of the unified field of awakened nature that arises, that we all arise in and as a part of. I find the dream analogy fascinating. Long before I started Buddhism, I had an interest in the stuff of dreams and sleep. Like how every night we surrender our egoic lives. We have been doing this since we were little babies, before we even had an ego. But then as we developed an ego, every night we would surrender. We surrender that developing sense of self. We surrender all of the roles, responsibilities, our hopes, our fears, our anxieties to the great mystery of sleep. Who are we when? I mean, this is such an interesting question. And for those of you who don't feel like you have time to dedicate a lot of time to on the cushion practice in your daily life for whatever reason, Just carrying this question, like, who are we when the awareness of our bodies, thinking minds, senses, and the ordinary sense of the world disappear? And that happens every night when we fall asleep. 
our normal sense of the body, our thinking minds, the world that we were just living in, even if we're like sleeping with somebody, they disappear. You know? And we enter this, this realm we call sleep. Is deep, dreamless sleep a kind of samadhi? Do we enter a realm where all is okay? All is at peace? Do we return to our original home? And Zen, we have a koan, darkness is the home from which you've come. In which you return. And then from that place of deep letting go, that place of pure potential energy, awake darkness. We don't die as we fall asleep. Part, parts of us do, the thinking mind does, the ego does. But it's awake, it's aware. The Tibetan tradition has a lot of practices around uh, dream and sleep. And they talk about the clear light of sleep that you can actually fall asleep. And some people may have tasted this during retreat practice or some points in your life of just being aware of that state, an awake darkness. And then from that place of pure potential energy, images, landscapes, beings emerge, the content of our dream. A dream takes form. And if you just see the dream as a dream, it's the creativity of mind's nature displaying itself to itself. Often what happens is the dream emerges and then we become a figure in the dream and we, the egoic self kind of recongeals as a dream ego. But we can also experience the dream and do experience the dream as the creativity of mind's nature displaying itself to itself. So creative. So usually we take that position of the dream ego and feel like things happen to us in the dream or we do things or have experiences or feelings in the dream. And dream researchers note that our body actually responds to these nighttime visitors in the same way that the body responds to daytime stimuli. So we may wake up with a deep sense of anxiety or rage or a deep sense of bliss or wonderment depending on the scenes in the dream. Other times we may wake up, and a number of people reported this, of a sense that we have just been running or drowning or, or in a fight and our body felt the impact or we fell and our body felt the impact or gasping for air. Some physical sense linking back to the dream. Dream workers also note that often dreams happen as a series of images, not as a narrative, not as like a linear narrative. It's the waking mind that comes back in and interprets it in a way that it can understand. So that actual experience of the dream is more just pure sensation often wordless, or if there are words, they're very clear. 
pure experience, pure emotion. When we wake up from a nightmare or a painful dream, we can feel a sense of relief. Has anyone had that? Like, oh, it was just a dream. Just a dream. Here I am in my bed. It's not flooding. There is no evil force out to get me. I am safe. We recognize that dream images arose in our minds. The whole scene happened in our minds. As I get more intimate with sleep and dreams and bring the eye of practice to them, I feel like sleep and dream is really a sacred practice. If, if dreams happen in our minds and are made of mind, first, wow, how deliciously intimate this whole universe is arising inside of me. This beautiful creativity, even these dark images, like, whoa. How creative the mind is when I'm not controlling it. How beautiful, how nightmarish, how insightful, how clever, how sweet. I've experienced the bluest waters in dreams. Oftentimes people have a sense that gets really highlighted in in clear dreams. We can have dreams that are more kind of just the processing, kind of chaotic dreams. But also many people have had at least like one dream that was clear that they remember. Sometimes I experience the clearest sense of purpose, like everything makes sense in the dream. I feel like totally aligned with my spiritual life. Also, I've experienced some of the deepest fears I've ever felt. I can feel them more, maybe more intensely or more intimately in a dream. And some of the most intimate encounters with the more-than-human world, animals, plants, even non-human intelligences. Friends tell me that I had a friend tell me once recently that he woke up from a dream feeling just the most genuine sense of love and was pondering like, oh, when I'm usually in relationship, there's some degree of self-consciousness that prevents me from receiving love from another. But in the dream, I really got a taste of what that would be like to to feel love from somebody without my blockers, without my nourishment blockers up. Other friends tell me of beautiful landscapes they visit, more beautiful perhaps than anything they've ever seen in waking life. And I wonder if that's because the thinking mind in a dream isn't overlaying itself onto the landscape. And nightmares, too, as a practitioner, can be such potent teachings of where fear is leading our lives. Or sometimes a wake-up call. We have a teacher in our sangha who had a dream of a fierce wolf looking her in the eye. And she realized from that dream that um, she had breast cancer. And it was the dream that, that took her to 
to look into that to get get the healing. So sometimes what seems nightmarish in a dream is actually waking us up to something that we need to deal with in, in our waking lives. Or just showing us a piece of our lives that need our care, our attention, our grace, or something that's, being, that's tired of being exiled in us and wants to be integrated or healed. So if dreams happen in our mind and are made of mind, well, what is mind? And is my waking life also made of mind? That's my experience. Like my most intimate experience is of mind or awareness. Same in dream when I'm awake to that or I get the feeling sense when I wake up of like, whoa, that just happened in mind, there's something that's continuous between waking and sleeping. In a culture where the ego is a cultural meme, the iPhone, iPad, eye-centered living, it makes sense that sleep and relinquishing egoic control is undervalued. And dreams are just considered a processing of the day, just a dream. Yet this hasn't been the case throughout human history. In Aboriginal Australia, dreams are considered of collective importance. One is given a dream, and it's meant to be shared with the whole. It's also believed that the landscape dreams, the earth dreams, and that shamans are able to travel during dreams, doing important spiritual work in other realms. In Buddhism, too, there's a long history of teachers and practitioners who have had premonitory dreams, which is interesting. I, I shared this. I don't remember who I shared this with. I, um, I work with teenagers. I teach mindfulness and meditation uh, to teenagers in an <clears throat> outpatient mental health program. And sometimes I just ask them, like, who remembers their dreams? Just, like, way of making small talk or curiosity. And, like, sometimes five out of seven of the people have had premonitory dreams or have premonitory dreams regularly. Like, oh, I have dreams and it happens the next day. Just kind of say it. Yeah. And the, the younger folks often are the ones who report that more than the older ones. So people who are like 11 through 15. Sorry, you fell. <laughs> so in the Buddhist tradition, the Buddha's mother had a dream of being pierced by an elephant with uh, the tusks of a white elephant and knew she was pregnant with the Buddha. And the Buddha's wife, Yasodhara, had eight dreams depicting the stages of the Buddha's awakening before he left their home. And so when he told her he, was, he needed to leave, uh, she had reassurance that he must go and pursue this vow that was rising in him and it would be of benefit for for many beings. 
Kazan Zenji chose the place that he built one of his temples, one of his monasteries, based on a dream. And, and was guided very much by his dreams. In dreams, we can communicate with deceased loved ones. And sometimes when that happens, they're the clearest dreams, like a visitation, like they're really there. Dreams invite the mysterious workings of the universe, a place in our lives. They remind me and can remind us that we aren't in control the way the ego wants to be or thinks it is. It's like if we allow space for a third of our lives we're sleeping, is that true? I guess it depends on how much sleep you actually get. Maybe monastics don't quite have that. (laughs) But you guys do a lot of meditation. Um, but, you know, if we're like entering this realm for so much of our lives, why do we think this waking life is the important life, the more important life? I mean, they can be equally important. I'm not saying, oh, dreams should be more important, but they can. This is like one whole life, not just the parts where we're in control <laughs> or think we're in control. So attending to sleep and dream, bringing awareness to this process, it can be, uh, this process of sleep and dream can be healing to the parts of us that are tired of playing the ego's self-improvement game. In Sashin, we get to practice surrendering egoic fantasies and protective strategies And most people have at least a taste of the calm, the peace, the stillness, presence, clarity, or love. Those are all words that I heard at Closing Circle of our essential nature. We we use these words to describe something that's wordless, but we taste the essence of who we are. And often they feel, it feels calm, it feels peaceful, it feels like coming home. Shinsho said that, coming home. And as we come out of Sashin, it sometimes can be jarring that suddenly people are calling us by a name that we got to relinquish for five days or only heard once on the first day as we got our name called for wash up. And people will start looking at us in the eye and like expecting us to coherently put sentences together to describe our experience like nothing happened the last week. (laughs) And we know that soon we'll be stepping back into roles, responsibilities, and relationships that shape our lives and occupy our attention. We know there are emails and voice chats and Instagram messages perhaps waiting for us. And, and those emails and voice chats and Instagram messages 
aren't from necessarily from people who regard us as a shimmer of light and sensations <laughs> that we've come to regard ourselves malleable and mercurial in my nature, but think we're such a such and such a way, or we should be, uh, who think in deadlines or decimal points or the right way. And we can enter our lives using this practice as, this is a dream! <laughs> or this is a dream, this is a dream, this is a dream, this is a dream, this is a dream. <laughs> or we can enter and just let the dream eat us up and just totally forget about what just happened. Or we can enter with deep intention to see each being as a blessed manifestation of this great dream that we are all a part of. And probably what will happen is the dream will unfold itself and we will meet it in all those ways and more. We'll find other ways to meet it. I'm leaving, and I, I feel like you know, leaving Sashin with intention just as we come to, to, to Sashin with intention, that really matters. I mean, that's the way we use the dream instead of being used by the dream. That's the way we use our minds instead of being used by our minds. So I am leaving with the intention to see the unfolding of this dream as sacred. And that's something, since I left the monastery, that I realized my life is missing, is just coming back to the sacredness. Each part, each part. You know, in, in Sashin, we have all these reminders throughout the day, like, oh yeah, eating is sacred. We do this whole opening ritual to remind us that eating is sacred. We do this whole elaborate ritual in the morning to remind us that mornings are sacred. <laughs> Waking up is sacred. And then we do a, a short service before work practice to remind us that working is sacred. And, you know, and then throughout the day, just keep coming back to the next activity you're doing is sacred activity. The next one, the next one. Your life. So, so the message there is your life is sacred. This life is sacred. And that there's so much support. So there's so much to those ceremonies that we do, those brief chants that we do. There's the reminder for us that this is sacred, our lives are sacred. But we're also leaning into the support of the ancestors, the dream of awakening that the ancestors continue to pursue that allows us to, to wake up to it, to wake up to that dream that we can awaken. We're leaning into that support and we're also dedicating the merit. And that's like, dedicating our life to a life of service. Like, may other people benefit from me responding to these emails, from me cleaning this toilet. It's still so much easier to clean a toilet at the monastery and feel like it's sacred practice than to clean my own toilet at home. <laughs> and people say that all the time, like, oh my gosh, I chop mushrooms at the monastery. It's like samadhi. I chop mushrooms at home. It's like hell. <laughs> <laughs> It's just the mind, right? 
But we're in, like, in this container, this dream is sustained. Emilio just did such a beautiful job of, of saying that on the second day in her talk of just, like, how we dream this monastery into being. And it needs to be redreamed. Because if it's, you know, if, if we stop creating a monastery, it will become something else. If we stop thinking of this place as sacred, it will get eaten by weeds. It will become infested with chip chipmunks. <laughs> we used to have chipmunks much more inside the monastery. I remember having a chocolate bar during one session, and it ate all the nuts out of the chocolate bar and left me with scrapes. <laughs> Then we, we got, fence, um, not fencing, <laughs> um, screen doors. <laughs> Made a little bit of a difference. <laughs> so I'm leaving with the intention to see this unfolding dream as sacred. And that includes all the parts like the emails, the awkward conversations, the shame. I mean, that's like a big place that the self comes in and says, this isn't okay. The sweaty armpits, the restlessness, the desire to touch another human being. And sometimes we leave Sashin full of intentions, full of intentions. And sometimes those intentions have like a very concrete, idea of what it should look like. Like, I'm going to leave Sashina. I'm going to practice eight hours of zazen a day. I'm just going to do it. Why do I, I'm just going to keep going. I used to do that when I was in residency, I would often like just want to continue. And sometimes I could get like six hours in a day after, but I was here. I was at the monastery and that didn't last very long, maybe like eight months. But for most of us, even that desire to dive deeper, to keep going in this process of unburdening, relinquishing the self-centered dream in Zazen, even if that's there, we have other vows and commitments tugging at our hearts. And so that, like, that vow to keep going deeper, like that deeper can happen in retreat. It can happen in our daily life practice to an extent, but it really is nourished in retreat. And so sign up for the next retreat. Know that, you know, promise yourself that you're going to do that, that that's important. You know, you acknowledge that's important. I feel like as I've done sashin after sashin over the years, that there is a continuity. Sometimes not as clear, but sometimes it feels like it just picked up right where the last sashin ended. And there's, there's a continuity to that vow to deepen. And then yeah, and then we pour the, the energy of this sashin, the learning, what was touched in us into the rest of our lives. So sometimes after a deep sashin, it can be disorienting to return to daily life. We go from a place, like I said, that reminded us that everything is sacred to a culture that seems to have forgotten what that word means. 
or perhaps has made greed, anger, and ignorance sacred. Of course, we can find ways that that's not true. There are, there are pockets of beauty all over the world. There are pockets of people doing amazing things from sheer compassion and vow. And sometimes it can feel like we're very much living in a world run by great anger and ignorance. The monastery can help us connect with our dreams for our spiritual life. The deep dreams or intentions that exist below the surface of mind, but seem to carry us back to practice in all the various forms it takes. You know, you said in one of her talks, the Dharma is subversive. And it is. It's, it's subversive to see ourselves, others, and the world beyond our fixed beliefs. It's subversive to see ourselves, others, and the world beyond our fixed beliefs. It's subversive to even look into the fact that we have fixed beliefs and we're not just living by the programs that we've internalized. Sangha is subversive for that sense of isolation, for that sense of, I have to do this alone, that we may sometimes feel in daily life. Our own spiritual vows are dreams that are worth feeding. So contrary to popular belief, Sometimes we can get this fixed belief stuck in our heads. The Buddha did not teach, don't think ever. <laughs> so you don't have to carry around that message when you leave Sashin of like, oh, I failed, like I'm thinking again. But the Buddha did teach that thoughts are powerful. And that's why we spend so much time in Sashin letting go, letting go, letting go, clearing to see what's underneath. But thoughts are powerful. And, you know, in the language of Byron Katie, which I found really helpful, it's not the thinking that's the problem, it's the believing the thoughts that causes the suffering. And, and you know, we, we can learn to distinguish what that feels like. When am I attached to the views of this thought? When has this thought or belief completely covered my sense of who I am in re reality? And when is it just shimmering sensation, then there's nothing I really have to do about that. Can, it will go on its own. But the moment we take a thought as true, we're living inside of the dream of that thought, that perspective, that belief. And all thoughts are limited. Some thoughts, like vows, lead to liberation, kindness, they benefit others. Others lead to suffering, pain, confusion. You know, for the monastery to manifest, it started out as a dream. It started out as a thought. And then people had to pour energy into that thought to carry it through all the challenges and obstacles it takes to found a monastery, including like finding the property and all of the other pieces that if you want to hear the origin story of the monastery, you can talk to Chosen and Hogan. So like to, to have a vow that is going to take form in daily life, it takes energy to, to feed that, to sustain that vow. 
And we will all fall into delusive thoughts. That's part of being a human being. And that's why we continue to practice. The more we live in awareness, the more we have a chance to see what thoughts we're believing on to experience and a chance to question or release those thoughts that lead to suffering. We also have an opportunity to direct our thoughts towards wholeness, towards wholesomeness, towards thoughts that connect us back to the basic bodhisattva vows. Somebody said this in one of the groups last night, like when they remembered just that basic vow of like, may all beings be truly happy, that basic intention, that that brought them back to presence every time reliably. May all beings be truly happy. May all beings be free. That's a basic dedication we can do, especially when you notice the mind heading towards negativity or you feel confused. As we pour the dream of Sashin into the dream of your daily life, I'd like to invite you to notice the vows that you're already living. Sometimes we can leave Sashin and feel dissatisfied about the life that we're going back into. Like there's something here that feels just so spiritually nourishing and we want to live that spiritual nourishment or feel like we're giving back in the way that we feel here in our, our daily life. But sometimes we are doing that. We're just not noticing it. And so, yeah, I would like to invite you to notice the vows you're already living. Step back into the rituals of your daily life that you already have with intention. Make them sacred. Our lives actually already provide a wonderful container to offer ourselves wholeheartedly to the benefit of all beings. And if you stay for Hosan Circle, we, before the residents go on break, which they go on break after Sunday program, after lunch, we chant the uh, precepts. And that's another way, that's another container to pour the energy of Sashin into, is, is precepts practice that helps us orient in our lives which are, we get into sticky situations in our lives. It's not as, you know, people are talking. So it's a little different than Sashin in that um, there's more opportunity for misunderstanding and interpersonal conflict. And more opportunity for growth and practice in that realm of opening the heart and being present and listening to others and nurturing tenderness for ourselves and others as we navigate being human together. So remembering is often what I come back to. Remembering that you have vows, that there's something deep that brought you here to practice, whether it was for Sashin or for Sunday program or for residency and to trust in that, to entrust yourself to that. So please let your heart's deepest intention infuse your living. 
This is how we dream the world awake together.